In the past two decades, pollination costs have increased dramatically for almond growers. On average now, about 15 to 20 percent of the total cost of producing almonds is in just pollination alone. This has been driven by supply and demand, but where will things go from here? We talk pollination with almond grower Dan Cummings on today's episode of the Almond Journey podcast. Welcome to the Almond Journey podcast, brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually of course, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance the almond industry. On today's episode, we go north on 99, up to the great community of Chico, California. This is the hometown of third-generation almond grower Dan Cummings. And for as long as he can remember, farming was always what he wanted to do with his life. I grew up on a farm. I remember my earliest memories as farming with my dad, moving pipe. I remember as a, as a little guy trying to move two-inch, 30-foot sticks of pipe, uh, helping him on the farm with all sorts of different tasks. You know, my, my great-grandfather bought the original farm in Oakdale, California, back in the 20s. In fact, in my office, I'm very proud to have full closing statements from Blue Diamond Growers. At that time, it was the California Almond Growers Exchange cage to date back to 1928 and 1929 and the retail price list from 1931. Uh, and that's what my father did. My father studied palmology at UC Davis. And yeah, I, I, I always planned and aspired to following my father's footsteps, my grandfather's footsteps. Dan's father and uncle left Oakdale to serve in World War II and then went to UC Davis on the GI Bill before settling in the Chico-Durham area. In his career, Dan has farmed as little as 200 acres, all the way up to as many as 11,000 acres. I asked him how he's had to approach management differently with the different sizes of these operations. It's been quite an odyssey. It's almost come full circle. As uh, I grew up... Uh, with a family farm, which was 200 acres, and really did everything. Not the earliest memories, but I remember being in high school and going to class smelling like diesel because I'd been up all night running around in a CJ5 Jeep lighting smudge pots. So, you know, pushing brush, running all the harvesting equipment, really doing everything. Pruning kiwi fruit. We used to grow kiwi fruit. And uh, I remember achy shoulders, even as a teen, as uh, you'd be out there all day long. We used to have more fog in those days. So you'd have this cold, damp conditions and pruning shears overhead, wrestling the brush uh, out of the kiwi fruit vines uh, all day long, doing payroll. I remember doing payroll late teens by hand on a ledger and calculating the withholding taxes and double checking. And so uh, a lot of things have changed. After I got out of college, I picked up some farm management and uh, that grew. I ended up having several different clients. And at one point was uh, responsible for 11,000 acres. So the difference between 200 acres with three or four people farming and 11,000 acres with uh, also some processing, gosh, you know, at, at peak harvest time, you've got 130, 140 people. Got spoiled, actually. We had, you know, we had five different mechanics, six mechanics, uh, had four PCAs on staff, two were farm managers, but Two also were full-time PCAs. Frankly, there's so much uh, regulations and reporting requirements that have evolved uh, for me over the last 40 years. I kind of lost sight of it because I had so many staff. 
So, you know, now that we're, we're at 1,300 acres, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have my office manager that's been with me for my entire, really my entire career. Vicki Staples is, is a great help, and she's familiar with all of this. But gosh, you've got COOPA reporting, SGMA, FSMA, all these acronyms, Food Safety Modernization Act, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. I had to renew my, my private applicator's license for pesticides, Department of Transportation, watershed districts, nitrogen budgeting, just so much regulation. And now it's just Vicki and I taking care of all of that. Good thing is I get to be out in the field more. When I was responsible for 11,000 acres and so many people, I'd only get called out to the field when there was a problem. I'd get the phone call and say, hey, uh, I know you're busy, but do you have time to come look at something? And I thought, oh, my goodness, what's this going to be? And so now I get to be out there in the good times as well. So that's kind of the full circle growing up on on 200-acre farm, uh, managing up to 11,000 acres, and then now at 1,300 acres, and then some of the board positions that I'd mentioned to you, which... Uh, I really enjoy. I, I really enjoy being able to apply my life experiences and help uh, encourage and develop and mentor uh, other individuals. You heard Dan mention there his board involvement. In addition to the 1,300 acres of almonds he manages, Dan is the chairman of the board of Blue Diamond Growers. He also served on the board of directors for the Almond Board. As if all that's not enough, he's an advisory board member for EC2C, an agricultural predictive analytics company based in Sevilla, Spain, and on the board of directors for a farming company based in Wheatland. So with this broad view of the entire industry, I asked him what's unique about farming almonds in the Sacramento Valley compared to other parts of the state. The biggest difference would be in the Sacramento Valley, and these aren't fresh statistics. It's been a few years since I've actually done the math. But the whole of the Sacramento Valley produces less almonds than Kern County does. There's four different counties in the San Joaquin Valley that produce more almonds than the entire Sacramento Valley. So the biggest differences would be uh, weather and water. I think that uh, certainly there's areas in the San Joaquin Valley that have very good uh, water supplies. We have a pretty secure water supply in the Sacramento Valley. Of course, there's exceptions anywhere. You know, if you're really far to the west and dependent on district water, uh, water supplies have gotten tight in the past, but generally good water, good rainfall, not just water, but rainfall. I think Kern County gets four to six inches a year, and our average is up around 25, 26 inches of water. And then the weather, we, we have a shorter growing period because we have a ball that rain. Our, our trees start up a little bit later in the spring and shut down a little bit earlier in the fall. But wind, I know that uh, from pruning trials and cultural practices in the San Joaquin Valley, when we design an orchard, you first look at the soil and then you choose your rootstock. And one of our top priorities for rootstocks is anchorage. In the San Joaquin Valley, it's production. It's early production. For us, it's anchorage. And then when you get into pruning practices, most of the trials say minimal pruning. is, is, is The less pruning you do in the long run, you're going to produce the most almonds. And I've tried lots of different practices. We select three primaries. We cut them at 30 inches long and we strip everything off. And again, that's for, for wind, for structure, so that, uh, you know, we've got good anchors with the root system. We've got good structure in the tree development to sustain the winds that we have up here. So those would be the primary uh, differences that first come to mind. Maybe a little less insect pressure. One other aspect of Dan's journey that's been unique has been his involvement in beekeeping. He's a past owner in a large honeybee business called Oliveris and chairman emeritus of Project Apis M, a nonprofit honeybee research organization. 
So we'll dive into today's featured topic now about pollination. And one quick note before we do, you're going to hear Dan talk about his cost of pollination as 12%. The average across the entire industry can get as high as 15 to 20%. And either way, it's a significant expense, but I just thought I'd clarify the discrepancy between his number and the one I used at the top of the show. But Dan's going to start our conversation by explaining the biggest challenge he's seen in beekeeping in his career. $8 a hive compared to $215 a hive. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, but that's, that's the most striking contrast is the cost of pollination. I was involved with a, with a great beekeeping company, uh, Oliver's Honeybees. Ray and Tammy Oliver's were my partners. I sold my half interest to them now, I think, four years ago. It's a lot of work and stress and scary, just flat out scary, you know, with colony collapse disorder and so much can go wrong so very quickly unless you're really, really on top of it. I think one of the testaments to Ray and Tammy's success is that they're also queen breeders. And so they're more actively managing their hives, I think, than, than beekeepers that don't produce queen bees. So certainly the varroa mite and then all migration. And then, again, I don't necessarily have these numbers uh, uh, quite current, but uh, I know when I used to speak at a lot of the national honeybee conferences, it was striking that the value of almond pollination to the bee industry is, gee, about 90% of the value of all the honey produced. Think about that. And, and just almond pollination. The revenue to beekeepers that almond pollination generates used to be, I, mean, I haven't done the numbers the last couple of years, but around 85% of the value of all honey produced in the United States. And over two-thirds of all the bees in the United States are necessary for almond pollination. So there's this fast migration, trying to keep these hives healthy and be prepared. And, and really in the middle of winter, almonds are the first uh, deciduous fruit tree to bloom and require cross-pollination. And so to have these hives robust and available in California to pollinate now, which is 1.3 million acres of almonds, is really quite a feat. It, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, honestly. I've been involved in both ends of the business, almonds and I shouldn't say beekeeping. I was more the financial partner. I'm Ray and Tammy are the beekeepers. But I marvel, frankly, at what beekeepers are able to do and the support that they afford the almond industry, which is required. Do you see that very often where an almond producer is in some way partnering with a beekeeper, you know, rather than just treating it as sort of like a, you know, annual transaction? Not very much. Not very much. Uh, you know, another way to look at this is, is if you think about all the inputs that go into producing a pound of almonds, all your variable inputs, not fixed capital, but variable inputs of production, around 12% of the cost is in pollination, which is pretty crazy. You think about all the labor, all the crop protection products, fertilizer, cost of water, cost of equipment, is around, depending on your operation, 12% of the variable cost of inputs to produce almonds is for pollination. And so that was a great incentive for a lot of almond growers to try to vertically integrate and provide that input themselves to help reduce costs. Beekeeping is really tough. In most instances, it really hasn't worked out. It's the rare exception that almond growers are, have been successful cultivating bees because the bees is a full-time job. Growing almonds, it's not like a, an annual crop. We're busy 12 months of the year. We get done with harvest. We start pruning. We're putting down our strip sprays. Not so much dormant sprays anymore, but we're getting ready for pollination, which is starting right now, the middle of February. There really is no downtime for almond production. And really, to be a good beekeeper, you need the same dedication and attention 12 months of the year. 
And to do both at the same time is really quite a challenge that, that most haven't succeeded at. Well, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I mean, as far as the bee health side of things, are you seeing anything as a former, you know, uh, beekeeper yourself? I know you said you're more of the financial guy, but are you seeing anything that makes you optimistic that we're going to improve sort of the, the ability for them to manage bee health? The fact that we've survived the last 10 years, it's been brutal, last 10 years especially, uh, with a bromide, with a spread of uh, viruses within the bees, droughts in California and elsewhere across the United States, lack of natural feed. I think that's a, a colony collapse disorder. There's no, they've not determined one causal agent. I think it's cumulative stress. And the biggest contributor to that cumulative stress, I think, is, is lack of natural forage. That's why Project APSM and the forage, the Seeds for Bees program is so important, is that when you supplement feed uh, with corn syrup, you know, for carbohydrates or yeast for protein, it doesn't come with the same bacteria. And so it's the gut biome, the, the gut bacteria that the honeybees get gathering pollen from natural sources. The richer that is, I think the more resilient the bees are, just very much the same as humans are. So beekeeping practices have evolved immensely over the last 10 years with the pressure that the industry's been under. And the greatest encouragement I have going forward is that we've survived the last 10 years and really some great organizations like Be Informed, like Project APSM, our ARS research services, makes me more positive now looking forward than I was 10 years ago. You had mentioned that um, you know partners at uh, Oliver's had, uh, they were queen breeders as well. Could you talk about the importance of that? Is that because if a colony does lose its queen, they can replace it and the colony continues to persist? Or what's the importance of that? You know, it would be hard to explain the impact that Varroa mite has had on the beekeeping industry. It is a large parasite. It, it would be like having a dinner plate on your chest of a human. I've heard oranges and I've heard uh, dinner plates, so somewhere, somewhere in between that size. And they're also a vector for the transmission of viruses. So where you used to get three years out of a, out of a queen bee, I believe that that was the length of time. Now you really need to requeen every year and a half or, or even less to have robust queens to promote a strong colony. Yeah, Oliver's is very unique in the sense that we produce queen bees 12 months of the year. We produce in California, but we also had an operation, and they still have an operation in Hawaii. Yeah, so they're able to produce queen bees uh, really year-round, but their biggest emphasis is in the winter when they can't produce queens in California. And then genetics. And again, this is you know from my memory from years ago, is that over half the genetic diversity had been lost from Apis mellifera, in the United States, European honeybee from selective breeding. You're trying to brood a, a docile, friendly bee. You're trying to brood a bee that is a successful honey producer. You're trying to develop a bee that will brood up in advance of almond pollination. So like the Russian queens, the Russian bees will fly at lower temperatures and they have some different attributes. They're very frugal. But if you give them supplemental feed, they won't brood up and develop a workforce that you need for almond pollination in February. And so as you're selecting for these different traits and you're narrowing down the genetic diversity, and I think that's another contributing factor to colony collapse disorder that is being taken into account now and, and you know, different programs at, uh, at Washington State and at uh, UC Davis, for example, trying to reintroduce greater genetic diversity into the breeding programs. And that goes directly back to the queen producers. 
Again, what a science that is. My hat's off to all the different queen producers. And that's another reason that I'm more optimistic, frankly, about the, the bee industry, is the progress that's made in um, the breeding programs for our honeybees. So you mentioned Project Apis-M. Is that mostly just trying to promote the development of these natural forage species for the bees? Is that what the primary focus is? No, that's one aspect of Project APUS-M, but Project APUS-M was founded in 2006. It was a handful of very progressive beekeepers and with representation of pollinated crops. And and, and, and that was two of us from the almond industry. Joe McElvain, that was the chairman of the Almond Board of California at the time, uh, also ran Paramount Farms almond farming operation and myself. And the notion was, we were a little frustrated is that bees were coming under additional duress. I mean, it was, it was starting to look a little frightening, frankly, in the bee industry. And the federal government was funding a lot of research as were different universities, but a lot of it was basic research. And the primary driver was all too often to publish papers from the academics. And so the vision of Project APSM was to unite the beekeeping industry and uh, pollinated crops dependent on the beekeeping industry to pursue applied research. And interestingly enough, the first few years is the, the biggest funding for Project 8% came from almond growers, not from the bee industry. Since then, uh, we've been so successful, we've been able to bring in uh, additional corporate funding. For example, Costco has been a great supporter. Monsanto has been a supporter. And the emphasis was on applied research, not basic academic research. Uh, more applied research. What are the immediate problems that we can mobilize around to try to get immediate solutions? And Project APUS M was was unique in that we were able to move very quickly. Is that uh, we do conference calls, we get a proposal. Uh, after the first few years, we established a scientific review committee. They really brought to bear the the academic background to evaluate funding proposals, uh, and and oftentimes make them better. Go back to the researchers and say we'd like to add this element to your study. And then Project APUS-M would fund it. And so a really great example was a Project APUS-M in a matter of months spent, I believe it was over $100,000 for an IVDS machine that came from the military and that was developed to identify viruses on the front lines of a battlefield. And we took that technology and were able to rapidly identify viruses in honeybees and actually identify new viruses in honeybees, which previously hadn't been determined. And so... That's an example of, of, of some real tangible, immediate benefit that Project APOSM was able to come up with a great deal of money in a very quick time frame and advance the, the science and promote the health of honeybees. So I'm, I'm really proud of that organization. I'm really proud of, uh, of the different people that have contributed and been on the board. And a big shout out to our executive director of those first 10 years, Christy Hines, that passed away last year. So she's deeply missed in the industry and by a lot of people in the almond community. She worked at the Almond Board of California and was our executive director of Project APUSM and had a great following. So it makes me sad when I think about Project APUSM. Christie's one of the first people I think about. Yeah. Very impactful program. You have such a, a unique perspective because you've been on both sides of the bees and uh, obviously as an almond grower. Is there any common misperceptions out there among your fellow almond growers that, that may be you know, you have gleaned from your insight as being on the pollinator side of things that you could share, or did we cover most of it? Beekeeping is tough. Be- being a successful beekeeper is, is is really a tough job and requires a lot of skill, a lot of attention. So I have the greatest admiration for, for beekeepers. 
I guess the only advice I'd offer is the better collaboration you can have between almond growers and beekeepers, the better the communication, the more successful both enterprises will be. And uh, it really benefited me working with the olive growers uh, to learn about beekeeping and then the communication. And I think I taught them a lot about almonds too. So it, it's been a great collaboration and it continues on. Well, I hope this episode has helped to shed some light on both beekeeping and almonds and about the interdependency between these two essential industries. Thank you so much to Dan Cummings for taking the time to be on the show. Now, you heard Dan mention the importance of collaboration between beekeepers and almond growers, and that's one component of the Almond Board's Honey Bee Best Management Practices. You'll find a really helpful communication chain on page five of this resource, which was developed with input from the almond community, beekeepers, researchers, UC Davis, and regulators. These honeybee best management practices represent the Almond Board's most extensive educational documents to date to ensure that almond orchards remain a safe and healthy place for honeybees and all pollinators. You can access the simple practical resource at almonds.com or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And to further support almond growers in planting pollinator habitat, the Almond Board has launched its B Plus Scholarship. This program provides free cover crop seed to 100 almond growers through Project APSM's Seeds for Bees program. The scholarship will also cover the cost for growers to register for the Pollinator Partnership's bee-friendly farming program. The funding provided by the Bee Plus Scholarship will allow growers to plant an estimated 3,500 acres of quality pollinator forage statewide. Visit almonds.com forward slash pollination for more information. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of these industry leaders might spark a connection or idea you can use in your journey. That's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice and pass it along to others in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. Together.